Chapter 14 Sent to Coventry Joining the West Midlands Police in 2002 felt like a massive culture shock to me. I'd been out of uniform in a special department for so long, and in many ways, what I'd been doing since 1994 wasn't traditional police work at all. It was 95% intelligence gathering. I was sent to the force clothing stores and got measured up for my sergeant's uniform. Surprisingly, their stores were the complete opposite of the Mets. They were okay about uniform leaving their stores and didn't treat you as if they were paying for everything from their own pocket. I can remember standing looking at myself in the mirror in my new uniform with sergeant stripes on my shoulders and thinking to myself, oh shit, you idiot. You've really gone and done it now, haven't you? The West Midlands was the second biggest force in the UK after the Met. The force covered a large, mostly urban area of the Midlands, including Birmingham, Wolverhampton, Coventry, Sandwell, Dudley, Walsall and Solihull. They posted me to Coventry, a city I had never set foot in and I knew nothing about whatsoever. All I knew was that the Luftwaffe had more or less flattened the place in the Second World War and that the specials had written a rather depressing song about the city in the 1970s called Ghost Time. After arriving, I was promptly told an apocryphal story about a German tourist approaching a cynical old sweat police officer on the outskirts of Coventry. He asked him if he could direct him to Coventry city centre, only to be told, you lot were able to find it in the pitch black from 10,000 feet back in 1940 so I'm sure you can find it yourself in broad daylight now. At my new station, I was introduced to the most senior officer, Chief Superintendent Chris Duffield. He was charming and could not have made me feel more welcome, and this was pretty much how things continued over my first few days. Everyone was incredibly friendly and welcoming, and any nervousness that I was feeling soon evaporated. Meeting my new team for the first time was a strange feeling. I'd never had to supervise staff before, so this was entirely new for me, and I had 12 real human beings looking to me for guidance, leadership and support. Fortunately, as with everyone else I'd already met, they were an excellent bunch. I soon realised why everyone was so nice. Coventry was a busy place, and policing in the city could be a rough, tough business. The city had high levels of deprivation, and therefore had problems with everything that typically accompanies urban poverty, drugs, violence and organised crime. Initially, I had no idea what was going on. The radio communications all sounded so different from those at the Met. The policing language was completely new, and forced procedures were barely recognisable. I also had to find my way around, learn the new geography, and conquer the West Midlands paperwork and IT systems, which were also alien to me. This is one of the odd eccentricities about policing in the UK. We don't have a national police force. We have this very fragmented system of 45 individual forces servicing each county and the two police forces in Northern Ireland and Scotland. Each of these has its own chief constable, senior command team, and different local procedures. HR processes, policies, IT systems and budgets. Every force 
enforces the same criminal laws, but they all do it in a slightly different way. It's incredibly inefficient, and there's a lot of duplication of effort and waste of money. However, what the system does do well is it ensures that policing is carried out in a way that respects and understands local issues, history, culture and language. Generally speaking, moving large numbers of officers from one part of the country into another part of the country doesn't work very well, for all sorts of reasons. This was demonstrated during the miners' strike in the 1980s. The Met caused a lot of problems in northern towns, and they've never been forgiven to this day. I was really fortunate to have a brilliant partner sergeant called Martin, who dug me out of the ship many times, and I learned quickly from him. He was Coventry born and bred, and he knew the city and all the villains inside out. He was great fun to work with, and we had a real laugh from day one. I realised very quickly that policing was policing, and all of the skills that I'd learned as a uniformed bobby in South London came back very quickly. I think that the late 1990s to the early 2000s was the last period in which British police were able to do their job without being shackled and hampered by pointless form filling and key performance indicators, KPIs. This will be covered in more detail later, but it was also the period in which a new breed of police managers started to emerge. These were managers who could tell you everything about how to pass a promotion selection process, but almost nothing about how to catch criminals. My team were a mixed bunch. We had a few old sweats, others with between three and seven years service, and a handful of brand new probationers with less than two years on the job. I quickly got the hang of things and started to enjoy being a sergeant and doing real police work. We worked hard, but had a lot of fun dealing with everything Coventry had to throw at us. Unlike in London, Many of the people we dealt with had barely been out of Coventry in their lives and lived in the bubble of their own council estate. In Coventry, unlike London, local villains and likely lads rarely refused to tell you who they were, simply because they knew that someone from the local police station would know them and everyone in their family already. What they didn't do, however, was come quietly when arrested, and there would frequently be major punch-ups in the streets that could get very lively very quickly in such situations. I was soon introduced to the quaint idea of a scuffle in West Midlands police jargon. A scuffle could be anything from two women having a pushing and shoving competition outside Asda over the last shopping trolley, all the way through to a full-scale riot with petrol bombs, burning cars and police helicopters overhead, and anything in between. Nonetheless, policing Coventry was great fun and also incredibly interesting as it had every policing challenge crammed into a very diverse city of 300,000 people. I don't know if there's any truth to this, but somebody once told me that government statisticians used to use Coventry as a kind of mini UK because the city had every aspect of typical UK life packed into a comparatively compact space. There were lots of deprived inner city estates, middle-class suburbs, and a few affluent neighbourhoods. It had a busy city centre with lots of shops, bars and nightlife, and plenty of busy motorways, fast A roads, and semi-rural villages on the outskirts. 
In Coventry, it was perfectly possible to be dealing with drug-addicted prostitutes and violent gangsters one moment, and a university professor living in one of the more affluent areas the next. Early on, I had a particular problem with a group of five or six teenagers who were making life pretty intolerable for people living in that part of Coventry that I policed. They were a horrible bunch, and they were responsible for most of the crime in that area. They bullied all the nice kids and caused an unbelievable amount of misery. I set out to turn the tables on them, and we hounded them mercilessly. At one point, my team arrested at least one of them almost every day, and eventually we managed to get them all locked up and subject to antisocial behaviour orders when they were released from prison. I knew my approach was working when I found Sergeant Donnelly is a cunt, spray-painted in large letters on the side of a tar block. At that point, I realised that we were definitely pissing off the right people. In my first couple of years at Coventry, everyone was generally left to get on with things by a pretty supportive management team. However, slowly but surely, there was a growing organisational obsession with performance metrics and KPIs. This was happening across the entire force, and I knew from speaking to colleagues in London and elsewhere that it was a national obsession driven by the Home Office. For me, with the benefit of nearly 20 years hindsight, it was this period around 2004 that was the point where policing in the UK started to lose its way, and from where I believe it has never really recovered. The Labour government under Tony Blair did a lot of great things for policing. The funding of the British police increased by 26% between 2001 and 2010. Indeed, this was a time when there were high numbers of police officers available to respond to emergencies, combined with the introduction of new neighbourhood policing teams across every part of the UK. These teams typically consisted of a sergeant, half a dozen uniformed constables, and two or three police community support officers, PCSOs. Teams were permanently allocated to each council ward, and they built close relationships with residents, businesses, and local councillors to tackle local problems. It worked really well, and these officers quickly became a font of knowledge as they knew every local criminal, who they associated with, and where they could be found. These teams were also able to nip issues in the bud before they escalated into something much more serious. They also had an incredible intelligence gathering ability, not just around crime issues, but also in matters relating to community tensions and terrorism. Crucially, they could spot the very young and up-and-coming criminals when they were in their early teens and divert them away from trouble and towards less destructive paths, or get them the support that they needed from other agencies. There's a definite link between the demise of neighbourhood policing and government cuts decimating many frontline public services and the rise of knife crime and county lines drug dealing. The neighbourhood policing teams dealt with local issues during the daytime hours. In contrast, the 24-7 emergency policing was delivered by local response teams working across three shifts. The earlies, 7am to 3pm, lates, 2pm to 11pm, on nights, 10pm to 7am, which were on a six days on, four days off pattern. It was one of these response teams that I was assigned to manage when I joined. So whilst everything in the police resourcing garden was rosy, 
at least for the time being. In life, every silver lining has a cloud. And in this case, it was a blizzard of new labor performance measurements that were introduced for every force in the country that started to cause problems. Initially, everyone pretty much ignored this new regime and carried on doing what they'd always done, i.e. patrolling the streets, responding to emergencies, catching criminals, and helping the decent people. Crucially, the organization trusted us to use our common sense to focus on what was essential and ignore time wasters. However, ever so gradually, senior police officers realized that if they wanted to progress their careers, they would have to get with the Home Office program and start cracking the whip on performance targets. And believe me, there were targets for pretty much everything. Initial response times, time spent at the scene, dozens of data quality targets, targets in the cell block with detainees, quality standards for file preparation, the recording of crime, the detection of crime, and on and on and on. The force published KPIs every month and individual command units were compared in league tables across the force and forces compared with each other nationally. No chief superintendent wanted to be at the bottom of the league table in their force and no chief constable wanted to be at the bottom of a national league table of forces. The net result of this was that only the things that got measured got done well. And this meant that there was no longer anything to be gained organisationally from policing activities that had no tangible positive outcome. So, for example, if a crime was assessed as too difficult or time-consuming to solve, it received very little attention. Whereas crimes that were easier to solve received a gold standard of service because they would generate a Home Office approved detection. And points mean prizes. There were also lots of targets relating to crime reduction, and this was where the most blatant practices took place to improve the statistics and make things appear to be better than they were. For example, there were lots of targets relating to burglary and vehicle crime detection. As a result, Officers often spent more time trying to show that something was not a burglary than if they had just recorded a burglary and investigated it properly. Every morning, tasking meetings were an exercise in statistical limbo dancing. New offences reported by members of the public in the previous 24 hours were subjected to a microscopic level of scrutiny not necessarily to try to figure out who had committed them, perish the thought, but to try to reclassify them as something that didn't get measured. Damage caused to a rear patio door, almost certainly caused by a drug addict trying to commit a residential burglary, would be reclassified as criminal damage, which the Home Office didn't really care about. The owner of a car with a broken driver's side window, would be persuaded that it had probably been caused by an errant stone from a passing car, rather than the more obvious explanation that someone had been trying to steal the bloody thing. However, if something couldn't be explained away as an accident or a less serious offence that wasn't going to be measured, 
the pressure was on to get it solved and detected. Therefore, fairly trivial crimes like the theft of a car radio would receive a platinum standard investigation. By contrast, a £10,000 fraud of a local business would receive virtually no investigation because it was too tricky and would just take too long. Everybody at grassroots level knew this was wrong, but to challenge this regime was pointless because pretty much every senior manager in policing across the UK was doing exactly the same. Ambitious senior officers with an eye on their next promotion tolerated this practice because they knew perfectly well that they would be supported by chief officers further up the hierarchy. Every chief constable was trying to win the national beauty contest and didn't want to know too much about how the fantastic results were actually being achieved. In the mid-2000s, the whole thing started to become a giant game of massaging statistics and finding ever more imaginative ways of making this possible. The primary purpose of policing, i.e. protecting the public, became almost secondary to chasing home office targets. And the rules were pushed to the absolute limit to hit those targets. I'm not proud of the fact that I, like most people, conspired in all this, even though I knew it was ridiculous. However, this nonsense couldn't last forever. And the Home Office eventually got pissed off and clamped down by bringing in a whole raft of new performance measurements relating to the dreaded data quality and new national crime recording standard. This meant that all data collected by the police, particularly recorded crime data, had to be scrupulously transparent with no possibility whatsoever that police officers were gaming the system. From this time on, if someone reported a crime, any crime, it had to be responded to, investigated and faithfully recorded. Her Majesty's Inspector at Constabulary enthusiastically enforced this standard and would conduct audits and inspections of forces. Slow learners were put on the naughty step of shame with an inadequate rating. To explain what this means, I'll describe how things were done before these targets were brought in and compare this with how policing looked afterwards. Policing before the introduction of new labour data quality targets. A member of the public phones and reports a crime. The police attend the address of the caller and find no one at home. They leave a calling card for the occupier to get in touch if they still need assistance. The occupier does not recontact the police. No crime is recorded and the police get on with their day dealing with victims who want to cooperate with them. Policing after the introduction of new labour data quality targets. A member of the public phones and reports a crime. The police attend the address of the caller and find no one at home. They leave a note for the occupier to get in touch if they still need assistance. The occupier does not recontact the police. The police then keep going back again and again until the victim either cooperates and reports the full details of the crime 
or tells the police to piss off and stop bothering them. This is the equivalent of someone making a doctor's appointment and failing to turn up. The doctor then repeatedly goes to their house until they reluctantly let them in to treat them, even though they're now feeling absolutely fine. And by the way, the second version of policing above is still how the Home Office expects policing to be done. In view of all this, there are a number of points that are worth making. Most Home Office recorded crime statistics in the UK have been nonsense for years. Setting targets in respect of crime detection and crime reduction creates the illusion of performance, but in reality, all this does is encourage unusual and completely counterproductive behaviour across forces up and down the country. Imagine how many proper criminals could have been arrested and lives saved over the past 20 years if the police had been allowed to use their discretion, tell time wasters to bugger off, and concentrate on the most important things rather than chasing stupid targets. It was around this time that several scathing exposés of contemporary policing were published. A lot of these books were written under pseudonyms because of the risks that the authors were taking, but they highlighted the collective madness that had infected UK law and order. Two of the better books to be released were Wasting Police Time by David Copperfield, who was later identified as Stuart Davidson from Staffordshire Police, and Perverting the Course of Justice by Inspector Gadget, who has remained anonymous to this day. It was also around this time that policing began to feel the full impact of two new pieces of Blair-era legislation, the Human Rights Act 1998 and the Freedom of Information Act 2000. The Human Rights Act made and continues to make many police managers very nervous about taking risks or making difficult decisions that may potentially land them in court. Suddenly, the organisation became preoccupied with managing risk and bureaucratic risk assessments for almost everything became the name of the game. This mindset gradually created a highly risk-averse culture where it was more comfortable and certainly safer for a manager's career to take the path of least resistance and avoid risky jobs rather than become the unhappy target of civil liberties lawyers. It didn't help that some of the prominent cases that received publicity during this time involved lawyers championing the human rights of some thoroughly undeserving individuals. For example, criminals like Jeremy Bamber, who murdered his sister and his parents, and terrorists like Abu Qatada, who argued that they had the human rights breached. I believe that we absolutely must safeguard the fundamental human rights of citizens and I've worked tirelessly to do that my whole career. However, I'm more interested in the human rights of victims of crime than I am in the human rights of a convicted terrorist and criminal. Certain well-paid lawyers don't appear to care one little bit about the innocent victims of crime who've had their human rights abused by their clients, and that can never be right. The Freedom of Information Act spawned an industry of civil servants in every public body whose entire job 
was to respond to what became a blizzard of freedom of information requests. The point of this legislation was to make public sector decision-making more transparent and decision-makers more accountable. However, the result is that the legislation is now routinely abused by individuals making frivolous and time-wasting requests, journalists sniffing out a spicy story, or commercial companies hoping to gather business intelligence and gain a competitive advantage. I had to personally deal with numerous freedom of information requests over the years, and some of these took me many, many hours to gather the necessary information. This was time that I would have much preferred to give to members of the public who needed our help. After 10 months as a newly promoted sergeant, I started to get a bit of a name for myself as a proactive officer with a pretty good arrest rate. I was asked if I would consider becoming a detective sergeant in the CID, by which I was naturally flattered. The DS role was highly sought after and I'd never been in the CID before and I was still quite new both to the rank and to the West Midlands. I applied for the job and I was successful. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. If only we could spare ourselves the pain, disappointment and stress of poor decision making. I realise now, of course, that when I was asked to consider applying for that job, I should have politely declined, pointing out that I'd had a lot of significant change in my life over the previous 12 months, and some stability would have been good. However, my ego got in the way, and I saw this as a great opportunity. Little did I know at the time that it would turn into a complete nightmare. The remit of the CID team was to deal with all serious crime that occurred in a specific geographical location, which in my case was a big chunk of the south of Coventry. We dealt with everything from burglaries, armed robberies, kidnaps, rapes, serious assaults, attempted murders and gang-related incidents. Our job was to pick these cases up from initial report and take them all the way through investigation and hopefully to court. Historically, there's always been tension between uniformed officers and detectives, with many of the former thinking the latter are prima donnas and a bit up themselves. In turn, detectives can be quite critical of many uniformed officers who might sometimes fail to do a thorough investigation which then causes them a massive headache when detectives inherit the case due to evidential gaps that should have been filled right at the start. For example, statements that should have been taken, evidence not exhibited properly, and witnesses allowed to wander off without taking their details. Every morning, my small team would sit looking through the handover packages left for them by uniformed officers and grumble miserably about all the things that should have been done before they received them. I've seen both sides, and I think it's fair to say that both sides work very hard. It's just that the pressures are different for each role. I was allocated a team of detectives based at the satellite station. This was geographically remote from where I'd worked previously, and I felt completely isolated with no one to turn to for help or advice. I had one or two very difficult, stroppy and obstructive people to manage. And the team had recently come under investigation 
due to the possibly corrupt activities of a detective who had resigned before I arrived. This had hit the morale of the rest of the team, and I now realised that they probably didn't trust me, a complete unknown who had mysteriously appeared from another force. They probably thought that I was an anti-corruption officer planted on the team to look at everything that was going on. This was something that anti-corruption teams did do, but it wasn't the case with me. My team also had a very heavy caseload that I felt was out of balance compared with the other two CID teams. There were only about seven of us to do absolutely everything, and the pressure was intense because of the seriousness of the cases we were dealing with. I was completely out of my depth. I quickly began to hate the job and the stress that came with it. Before long, I started to get cold after cold, and I ended up on courses of antibiotics for throat and chest infections. Obviously, this was my body telling me that I was stressed out and run down. I had taken on too much too soon after leaving London, and perhaps I was a victim of my own success. I had gone over the top of my own performance curve, and I was quickly burning out. Years after quitting, I began smoking again, and I was drinking too much. Mentally, I was also becoming increasingly anxious about coping with the job, and sometimes I would even have to stop my car on the way to work and throw up at the side of the road. I'd never experienced anything like this before in my life. I'd always been pretty confident of my own internal, emotional and psychological resources. It frightened me to feel so vulnerable, and I was ashamed of what I saw as my own pathetic weakness. Sometimes I would look in the mirror and barely recognise myself. I saw a pale, anxious face looking back at me, and I find this really troubling. This was my first experience of severe anxiety, but unfortunately it wasn't going to be the last. I found myself bursting into tears for no obvious reason, and I wasn't sleeping well. Eventually, after about eight months, I decided I needed to swallow my pride and get away from the job. When I told my senior management team, they were very understanding, and to my relief, they told me that this was no problem, and I could go straight back onto my old team, which coincidentally didn't have a sergeant at that time. I felt a huge sense of relief going back to my old job and the smiling faces of my old colleagues. I was a bit embarrassed on my first day back, but to be honest, nobody really cared. And it taught me a valuable lesson about how we can often turn minor things into major things in our own minds. Ultimately, everyone should just stop worrying about what other people think about them because they're, they're usually too busy worrying about themselves. I enjoyed my work as a sergeant in Coventry, and two years after joining the force, I studied for the inspector's exams and passed them in 2004. My chief superintendent asked me to join the inspector team as a uniformed acting inspector, and I gratefully accepted the offer. This would be a stepping stone to full promotion once I'd attended and passed a formal promotion selection process. I did this job for about a year and loved every minute of it. In essence, 
Rather than simply running one team of uniformed officers, I was responsible for everything whilst on duty, apart from the CID teams, who reported to the detective inspector. Becoming a uniform inspector felt like a big step up in responsibility. Sometimes I would be the most senior officer on duty in the entire city of Coventry, and I would have to make some pretty big operational decisions from time to time. I also had to provide advice and guidance to lots of very experienced staff who would quickly identify bullshit if they heard it. I also started getting addressed as Sir for the first time, which felt a bit weird, or sometimes to my amusement, Surge by one of my officers who had become so used to calling me Sarge that they weren't quite sure what to do. So they fused the name into a kind of hybrid between the two. Occasionally in these roles, particularly in the early days, I would have moments when I would think, oh God, this is a proper grown-up job. But on the whole, it was incredibly satisfying. And I had some great sergeants and experienced PCs that I leaned on and trusted 100%. I loved the fact that I could continue to get involved in proper frontline policing when I wanted to. But I was also part of a team that was sorting out complicated problems and managing lots of people. I could also delegate tasks that I had no interest in doing. One of these tasks arose one evening when we were responding mob-handed to an address in Coventry where a notoriously violent career criminal lived. He was wanted for a recall to prison for breaking his parole conditions. We all knew that he would kick off as soon as he saw us. So I summoned five or six officers and a dog unit as part of a belt and braces approach. Leading from the front, I strode purposefully up to the front door and knocked. I could hear voices inside and the door was then opened by a child of about 10. I asked him if his dad was at home. The kid turned and shouted, Dad! And almost simultaneously, our quarry appeared out of the downstairs toilet. He was a big hairy bloke in his 40s, wearing a string vest and yellow marigold rubber gloves. In his hands, he had a large plastic bowl containing what looked horribly like brown shitty water with lumps of turd and toilet roll floating around in it. He then proceeded to tell us that he was trying to sort out the blocked toilet. I immediately assessed that very shortly that bowl of shitty water was going to get thrown over anyone who got any closer. Therefore, taking several steps back, I summoned a couple of probationers and instructed them to explain to our toilet on blocker that he was to be arrested and returned to prison. I then moved quickly and purposefully out of the firing range. Predictably enough, it then all kicked off and I winced at the sight of our gallant officers being shard with turds and soggy bog roll as they tried to persuade our man to come quietly. The moral of the story is that rank has its privileges and that any idiot can get covered in shit. On reflection, there are lots of unpleasant things that happened during my police career. Everyone reacts to certain events differently, and stuff that upset some people didn't bother me at all. One of the things that I struggled with was dealing with suicides, and for some reason, I ended up responding to a lot of them. There was one period when I worked in Coventry when my team called me Dr. Death, 
because I was always being sent to suicides, both as a sergeant and as an inspector. It became a bit of a joke with my team, only I wasn't laughing. There was one period when I went to three hangings in about four days, and things definitely started to get to me. I never complained because it was my job as a supervisor to go and make sure there was no suspicious circumstances and that the scene was being managed properly. But I always struggled with these calls. The worst night shift I ever had was one in which I had to sit for hours and hours in a grotty bed sit with a bloke who'd killed himself earlier that evening. I was the sergeant, and it should really have been one of the PCs doing it, but there was literally no one available because they were all in the cell block with prisoners. So it fell to me. The only place to sit was on the bed, and he was in the bed, so I had to stand because I couldn't bear to sit down. It was very sad because it was just before Christmas and I think he had recently split up from his wife and was living in this crappy one-room bedsit. He'd put a big bag of presents for each of his kids at the foot of the bed and there was a letter on a piece of A4 addressed to each child. I still think about that now. I've also always struggled with bad smells. Obviously, for someone who gags easily, some of the things that the police have to deal with could be a bit of a nightmare. I had to go to a lot of post-mortems over the years and I used to absolutely hate the smell. It used to make colleagues piss themselves laughing at me gagging all over the place. My wife also used to get really annoyed at me when I started gagging whilst changing nappies once the kids had moved on to proper food. I can look at anything, but bad smells finish me off. On one occasion in London, when I was working as a paramedic, we were called to transfer a lady to hospital. She was dying and in her final hours. As we walked into the house, we were hit with a dreadful stench, and I started gagging before I'd even got into the room where her bed was located. I'm not going to describe that incident any further because it's simply too disturbing for me to write about. I also got called to a council flat where the occupant hadn't been seen for a long time, and rather shamefully, the council only decided to do something about it after he hadn't paid his rent for several months. We got a locksmith to get us into the flat, and everything seemed fine. No smell at all, which was usually the main sign. We checked every room in the house and found nothing. Finally, we tried to get into the bedroom, but the door was stuck. I put my shoulder to it and burst it open to reveal a bit of a horror show. The occupant had obviously died some time before, and the entire room was filled with millions of flies, both dead and alive, which all came flying at us out of the open door. We both ran outside screaming like a pair of eight-year-old girls, flapping at our faces and hair to get the flies off us. Once we'd calmed ourselves down, we went back in to check the deceased's property to make sure there was no signs of foul play. I'll never forget the horrible crunching sign as we walked through thousands of dead flies on the floor. After about a year as an inspector, I started giving some thought to my next career move. And for some stupid reason, I let myself be persuaded that a spell in the chief constable's staff office might be a good idea. Some bright spark advised me that this was an excellent way to see the inner workings of the force and gain a better understanding of strategic thinking. I put myself forward, was interviewed and with several under candidates and was successful. 
however, it would soon become clear that this was not going to be one of my career highlights.